0: Good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning as we continue our summer series to the book of Proverbs entitled Wisdom in Life. And if you've been around, you know the book of Proverbs portrays wisdom as not only knowing who God is, how he's designed the earth to be, but also living in light of that. So today we are looking at the topic of contentment. And I thought it would be fun since we're talking about Proverbs in the Bible to examine some of the proverbs of our culture and see how they compare. So as I read these, maybe you can guess as to the wise authors of these. All right, you ready? Number one, live mas. That is Taco Bell. Thank you. (laughs) As if you need to live more, so elevate your eating to the next level or something like that. Or this one, what's in your wallet? (laughs) It's Capital One and... Depending on what is in your wallet, you hear that one of two ways, and we're gonna talk about that a little later. Or have it your way, as the saying of Burger King, where you can be the king, and your way's the only way. So, live it up. Or my personal favorite, how doers get things done. If you want your house to look like Chip and Joanna Gaines just visited it, you go to Home Depot, because that's how doers get things done. Or think different. That's from Apple. And they will not only tell you uh, how great their phone is, but they won't tell you how much you need the phone. They'll just tell you how much better the new one is than the one in your pocket. So I hope you're beginning to see uh, a theme that we are actually marketed towards, discontentment and entitlement. So wherever you find yourself this morning, the truth is is that we're all just one advertisement, phone call, medical diagnosis, or social media scroll away from becoming discontent by what we don't have or entitled by what we do. And what I hope we'll see after our time together is that the gospel guards us from hopeless despair in discontentment from what we don't have. And at the same time, it also guards us from a prideful sense of entitlement for what we do. So the gospel guards us from a hopeless despair of what we don't have and a prideful sense of entitlement of what we do. And I wanted to take a page out of Pastor Jen's book this morning. So I have three guiding questions that will guide our time together as we explore the idea of contentment. And they are this. Number one, what is biblical contentment? Number two, how does Jesus actually respond to us in our discontentment and our entitlement? And number three, in light of that, how can we be content? So what is biblical contentment? How does Jesus respond to us in our discontentment and entitlement? And in light of that, how can we be content? So as we talk about first and foremost, what is biblical contentment? I think we need to examine the way that we traditionally understand contentment. Because I'm sure uh, if you're like me, you think, oh, contentment, it's being happy with what you have being grateful for what you have, uh, counting your blessings, as if we can just put a wall around the stuff that we have, and we build our own little kingdom of contentment, and everything's good because we're focused only on what we have. And you realize that's great until you see somebody else's kingdom. You realize that's great until you get the paper back with the grade and the person next to you scored way higher, and you go, man, if only that were me. Right? Or you're at a red light and you look over and you see the car next to you and then you look at your car that the oil light has been on for who knows how long and the other light that you don't know what it does, it just blinks, but it's still okay. Right? It's completely circumstantial. Or what happens when everything that you thought was yours gets taken out or your retirement After one night in the stock market, it looks completely different. Or the one thing that you thought was under your control, your physical health, and you went to the gym every day, and twice on Saturday because you were that good, and one phone call from your doctor can change it all. Man, contentment looks a lot harder now. Entitlement looks a lot harder now. Our hearts are, are prone to it. We're prone to this world of just constantly comparing and despair of what we don't have and prideful arrogance of what we do, thinking that it's ours. You see, the problem isn't that our view of contentment is too lofty or too hard for us. The problem is, is it's not good enough. Because at the end of the day, to count your blessings and to only focus on what you have and to be thankful for what you have, it still puts your possessions at the center, doesn't it? All of the focus is still on what you have. And as soon as you realize that you don't have something, or as soon as what you have gets taken away, well, we're not as secure as we thought, right? And it's not biblical, and it's not biblical. At the heart of the gospel has never, has never been focus on your stuff. It's actually been focus on, on something greater. Or we, we tend to spiritualize our, our discontentment and our entitlement. Like, well, God, if only I had a bigger house, then I could invite people over. God, if only I hit the lottery. Imagine all the good I'd be able to do for you, God. If only I had a bigger budget, then I'd, be able, then I'd be able to give. Or God, if only I wasn't so just awkward around people, I'd be able to serve. Or if only I had a little more time. And you realize it's, it's, all, the same, it's all the same thing. It's all discontentment. Despairing over what we don't have or what we think we need. Or... Thinking that everything that we have truly belongs to us. The Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs in the 1600s said this. He said, My brothers, the reason why you haven't got contentment in the things of this world is not because you don't have enough of them. That's not the reason. But the reason is because they're not proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God Himself. Many men think that when they are in trouble and they don't have contentment, it's because they have but little in the world. And if they just had more, then they would be content. Well, that's just as if a man who was hungry, to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take hold of the wind, and then he should think that the reason he's not full and he's not satisfied is because he hasn't tasted enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to the craving stomach. We need to rethink the way that we see contentment because if our stuff is at the heart of it, well, it's not good enough. And the book of Proverbs presents contentment in a different way. Probably the most clear is Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9, which Carly just read for us. And if you got one of those papers on the way in, I would invite you to just have that in front of you. We'll be referring to it a couple times. But Proverbs 30. Verse seven says this, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse them. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. This is in a collection of the book of Proverbs in chapter 30, known as the sayings of Agar. So if you get bored later, you can practice the name Agar. It's pretty fun. But the sayings of, of Agar and Agar presents a completely different way of entitlement, of, of contentment. Where rather than being the focus on stuff, it's on actually knowing the all consuming. All-powerful God of the universe who by his very word established all of creation and upholds it all in his right hand, as the psalmist says. So the view isn't on stuff, whether that be little or much. The view is on something far greater, and that's life with God. See, if walls are the way that we understand kind of a traditional way of contentment, I want us to think of contentment more like horse blinders. They found out that the way to inhibit the horse's distraction wasn't to make it go away. Rather, they figured if they could get his attention focused on something better than what was going on around him, the horse would focus. So they restricted the horse's vision only to what lies ahead. So the horse would become so focused on the finish line that it's not that anything else isn't there, it's that in light of the finish line, everything else fails to compare and actually isn't worth the horse's attention. And here you see Eger presents an eternal perspective on contentment. He sees life with God as far better than riches or poverty. At the heart of it, he comes from understanding two things. Number one, his mortality And number two, that poverty and riches are really two sides of the same lie. One commentator puts it this way. Poverty lies to you. It says God can't help you. God won't provide for you. You need to help yourself. And riches at the same time lie to you. You don't need God because everything's good in your life. You're doing a great job by yourself. Depend on you and not him. You see, the gospel shows us the finish line. What is presented at the cross shows us the finish line. Life with the eternal God and in light of that, it's not threatened by poverty or riches. In fact, the gospel guards us from hopeless despair and discontentment from what we don't have. And at the same time, it guards us from a prideful entitlement of what we do. So if biblical... Discontentment is more being so about the cause of the gospel that nothing else matters. Then at the same time, the heart of discontentment, the heart of our comparing, the heart of our despair, the heart of our pride in what we do have and despairing of what we don't. At the heart of it, what we're really saying is, God, the gospel is not enough. See, discontentment and entitlement are far worse than we actually think. Because at the heart, discontentment says, God, the gospel's not enough. It's not enough. I have to go out, and I gotta find my own way. I gotta build my own life. And entitlement says, God, the gospel isn't enough. Because what about me? Because I need to protect the stuff that I do have. So how does Jesus respond to that? How does he engage with our hearts in the midst of our disappointment, in the midst of our discontentment and our entitlement? Well, in order to see that, probably the best place is Luke 15, where Jesus tells a parable, and it starts like this. He said, a certain man had two sons. And one day, the younger son came to his father, and he said, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance, like, you know, all the money that I'm gonna get when you're, when you're dead. And basically, what the son is saying is, Dad, you are worth more to me dead than you are alive. Dad, I can do such a better job at building a life on my own because I see everything that I don't have, and you know what? I could go out and get it. I can imagine a little, this is how doers get things done. And his father, who could have had him stoned for such an offense, gives him his inheritance. And not many days later, the younger son leaves and he goes out into the world and he chases everything that the world has to offer. And Jesus says he squandered it all. If you've read it in the King James, this is the riotous living. He squandered it all and he began to be in one. Because then there was a famine. And this son who thought that life was to be found in what he could make it, the son who thought, Dad, I could do a better job at being the dad. I could do a better job at doing life my way. just need you to get out of my way. I see everything that I don't have, and what you have to offer doesn't compare with what I can get for myself. See, he finds himself in the depths of poverty, both physically and spiritually. It says there was a famine in the land and he began to be in want. So he hires himself out to take care of the only unclean animal that, that, that no Jewish person would have ever, ever come close to, and that's pigs. Like, life's that bad for this son. So much so that said he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that fell out of the pig's mouth became foolish. He forgot the words of Proverbs 13, 25. The the righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked grows hungry. And it's there in his poverty. It's there in his despair. It's there in his shame that he thinks of one thing. And it's not, how am I gonna get my life back together? It's not, man, if only I saved some, if only, if only I did this, if only I did that. No, the one thing that comes to his mind is actually the goodness of his dad. Because it says he came to his senses and he thought, how many of my father's hired servants are living better than this? And you see, the one thing that he despised in the beginning of the parable, he starts to understand the immense value that it's better to be a servant in the presence of the Father than autonomous without Him. It's that it wasn't actually about the Father's stuff, but life was actually found in the Father, that the Father could be that good and that generous, that even the servants live better than people who are without Him. Even the servants in the house, because the Father is that good, and just to be close to this good Dad... That's where life was to be found. And so what does he do? He rehearses this speech, and he goes, all right, I'll go back, and I'll say, Dad, uh, I'm no longer fit to be called your son. I blew it that much. Uh, I understand that, but can I, just, can I just be a hired worker in your house just so I can be near you? Yeah, I'll do that. And he, and he gets up, and he, he goes back to the house, and what he finds blows his mind because it's not a dad with his arms crossed, banging his foot, going, okay, so how much money are we talking about that you blew? It's not a dad going, well, it took you long enough, or I told you so. No, what does he find? He goes back and finds the open arms of a dad who's been waiting, a dad who runs to him, who doesn't even let him finish his sentence. He's that generous. He runs out to him, and what does he say? He says, get the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger because my son who is dead is now alive again. He reinstates him as a son. And then if you're a son in the presence of your father, there's only one thing to do. This dad is that good. There's only one thing you can do. That's to kill a fattened calf and to have a party because you found life. Because this dad is that generous. This dad is that rich that he, he doesn't even, he doesn't even care. He doesn't even bat an eyelash. This This son just spent two-thirds of everything that the father had. And what does the father do? You know, bring out more stuff because he's here. Because he's here. He's with me. And that's where life is. That's where life is, is to be found. And they start partying. And then the attention shifts to another son. Another son who is coming home from the fields and hears the partying and actually refuses to go into the presence of the father. No, this son is outside, enraged, frustrated, and most of all, entitled. And how does the father reply to this son? How does he respond to this son? Again, he leaves the party. He leaves the party and he comes out. And you can hear the heart of entitlement through the older son. Because he starts with Look, all these years I've served you, and I've slaved away for you, and I haven't uttered a word against you. And you haven't given me anything. Where's my goat so I could go out and have a party with my friends? Dad, how dare you not give me the honor that I deserve? What about me? What about me? Remember, the younger son took his inheritance. So what do you think the older son's thinking? Dad, you're giving away my stuff. You're giving away my stuff. And what's going to be left for me? You see, he's got the same attitude. He's got the same exact attitude of, Dad, I would do a better job managing the stuff. And probably the heart-wrenching part of this is the older son is out in, out in the fields. He does, he's away from the presence of the father. He should have had a share in displaying the love that the father had to his brother. That's what he gave up. He missed out on the love of the father that he was actually invited into to have a share in and displaying to his younger brother. He forgot the words of Proverbs 15, 16. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth and turmoil. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. In his riches, in his riches, he forgot the father. You see duty, you see delight turned into duty. So all these years I've slaved, I've slaved away from, And he gets this hoarding mentality of entitlement. But what about me? There's not gonna be enough. There's not gonna be enough. An attitude that that Proverbs 30 actually says is an attitude of the grave. Proverbs 30, 15, there are three things that are never satisfied. Four things that never say enough. The grave, a barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. You see in all of those things, there's a lack of life. entitlement and hoarding. It's the fear that there isn't going to be enough, and it leads to destruction. It leads to this son away from the presence of the father, missing out on the love and generosity that the father has for his younger son. And the amazing news is this father responds the same to both sons. You see the father's response to both sons you see it demonstrated to the younger son but he actually tells the older son. And this is this is the gospel this is what I don't want us to miss in this. That a heart that is turned away from God what is his response? He invites himself in. What does the father do to both sons? He runs to them. And you see it in what he tells the older son. He says, my son, all these years you've been with me, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. What is the response of a gracious and loving God to a bunch of idolaters who are discontent, discouraged by what we don't have, who think that we can build a life better than God can for us, or the the prideful ones of us who say, I'm doing a good job, God, and I can do a better job at managing everything because I'm doing okay. What is God's response? He invites himself in. And what does he ultimately offer? He offers himself. What does the Father ultimately give to both of his sons? He gives himself. He gives all of himself in the midst of their wandering, in the midst of their shame, in the midst of, of their sin, and the gospel is that God does the same for us. So what is God's, what is Jesus' response to our discontentment and our entitlement, the times that we find ourselves like the younger brother or we find ourselves like the older brother? How does Jesus respond? He invites himself in. And he offers himself. And he says, all I have is yours. You want to know what the antidote to discontentment and entitlement is? It's gratitude. It's really hard to be grateful and discontent. It's really, really hard to be grateful and entitled. The younger son realized that the father truly is better than all of his stuff, that the father truly loves a lot deeper than just writing a check offers everything to his sons. And he ultimately demonstrates that in offering all of himself. Life with the Father is far more valuable and satisfying than anything that the sons could make for themselves. And here's the amazing part, it never comes under threat of famine or fear of running out. That's why Proverbs 19:23 can say, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. So we see gospel-centered gratitude guards against discontentment and entitlement. And the, the response of God is the same. The invitation is the same no matter where you are this morning. In your despair of what you don't have, running back to the God who offers all of himself. Some of us in this room, we've been, we've been trying on our own because we feel like everything that the world has to offer is actually better than what God has to offer only to find that the words of Ecclesiastes are true. If you chase after the wind, the only thing you get is empty hands. And you're invited back into the welcoming arms of a loving dad who says, all I have is yours. So don't worry, you're not gonna miss out. Don't worry, there's nothing better that you can get for yourself. Just come back, just be with him. And At the same time, this loving and generous God looks at those of us who go, God, I'm actually doing all right, I don't, I don't actually need you. I'm doing a good job at managing things on my own. This God goes, come and be with me and you'll never have to fear of that running out. You're actually free to let that go. You're actually free to let that go. You don't have to hoard because the amazing news of the cross is there's enough for you and there's enough for me and it doesn't run out. So the invitation is the same. Come and be with the Father. Come and experience this generous God and what happens is he actually will make us generous people. So, how can we be content? How can you and I be content? We've looked at biblical contentment as horse blinders. How can you and I be so for the cause of the gospel that everything else fails in comparison? Well, we've seen that Jesus responds in our discontentment and our entitlement by offering more of himself. So, how do we find ourselves content? We look to the better son. We look to the son who knew that life with the father was far greater than anything that you could build for yourself, far greater than anything that you could manage for yourself, far greater than anything that the father has. The true secret is being with him. Jesus understood that, and what does he do? He doesn't wait for us to come to our senses. It's the older brother who runs to you and me grabs us by the hand and brings us into the presence of the Father because that is where life is to be found. And he does that at the expense of himself. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 2, you know the grace of, or I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 2 that Jesus, who being in the very nature God didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage, something to be lorded over, but rather what does he do? Humbles himself. He humbles himself. He's so for the cause of the gospel that God would delight in saving sinners like you and me. So for that cause that he lays aside equality with God, doesn't use it to be used to his own advantage, but humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's in that obedience, it's in that humiliation of Jesus that God raises him from the dead, gives him the name above every other name so that way the name of Jesus, every knee that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that life is to be found in none other and he absorbs the cost. He absorbs the cost, he does all of this and he's not worried about riches or poverty but he actually blends the two in himself. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he became poor, So that way, you and I, by his poverty, by his poverty, might become rich. He blends poverty and riches together. How? At the cross. At the cross where he offers himself. All that the Father has is ours. Because he offers all of himself. And you and I get him. You and I get him. And that's why Paul can say that he's learned the secret to being content. He says in, in Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether hungry or well-fed, whether living or whether living in plenty or in one. And this is the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We use that verse a lot. We use that a lot, but here it is. Here it is. Paul says, you want to know what the secret is in being able to live in plenty or in little? It's to know the one who's with you in those things. It's to know the one who offers you all things by ultimately offering him us himself. So the point this morning isn't monasticism. The point isn't how do I get rid of things in my life because they just create more want. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Rather, the gospel shows us that God offers us all that he has by giving all of himself. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, talks about how we should view the things that God gives in this way. He says, The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God actually withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered broadcast. We're never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why God does this. The security we all crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world, and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a meeting with our friends, a bath or a football match have no such tendency. Our Father certainly refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Friends, let us never be a people who mistakes the gifts for the generous God who offers himself far more, far over and above those gifts. So, without the daily preaching of the gospel to ourselves, we'll either be in this constant state of despair, feeling like we never have enough, or this prideful arrogance, thinking we deserve more, or that we've arrived, or that we need to protect everything that we have because we don't want it to run out. And the gospel actually speaks to the fear behind both. All that the Father has is yours, so you'll never have too little. You'll never miss out. And at the same time, all that the Father has is yours. It'll never run out. It's not something that you need to protect or hoard. And we see the gospel guards us from hopeless despair and discontentment focused on what we don't have and at the same time guards us from a prideful sense of entitlement for what we do. What if we believed it? What if we were a people so for the cause of the gospel that it radically changed the way that we view our time, our stuff, our resources, What if we knew that the gospel was bigger than our awkwardness and our busy schedule? We actually carved time to be able to serve one another. What if we knew the gospel was bigger than that small apartment that we have so we could still invite people in? What if we knew that the cause of the gospel demanded our hearts and was far more satisfying so we actually stopped looking at realtor.com because we just want to understand where the market is? Because we know that our hearts are prone to those things. They're prone to be drawn to those things in our discontentment. If the cause of the gospel was at the forefront of our mind when we looked at each other and we said, you know what? In much or in little, I've learned the secret. It's Christ with me, it's Christ in me, and I can do all things through a gracious God. That would actually free us to be generous. So, a good question to ask yourself is not am I content? It's actually a bad question. The better question is, is how am I using all that the Father has given me generously? How am I so for the cause of the gospel that it affects the way that I look at my time and my stuff? What if we as a church dared to respond to the God of the universe who says, all I have is yours. At the foot of the cross, we look at God and say, well, then all that I have is yours. That's intimacy with Jesus. That's life with God. That's far greater than anything that you or I can try and make on our own. It's far greater than anything that we feel like we need that we don't have and it's far more secure than anything that we feel like we have to grasp onto or hold onto. We can't lose it. God looks at you and I in the midst of our entitlement, in the midst of our discontentment and he says, all I have is yours. What if we were a people that were so generous to a world in desperate need of generous friends. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that we know that you gave all that you have to us because you gave all of yourself on the cross. So God, wherever we find ourselves, whether that's discontent and in despair over the things that we don't have, or a prideful sense of arrogance, Trying to, trying to hold on to everything that we do, would you help us to lay those things at the foot of the cross? Because there we'll find that your generosity is far more than anything that we could ever get for ourselves. It's there that we'll find the loving arms of a dad who welcomes us back and just wants to be with us. Jesus, help us believe that life is to be found in none other but you. The more we, the more we believe that, make us a people that look like you. And we'll find that we start loving our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers a lot different. We start looking like you. so God, thank you that you are all that we have and you're all that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.